0: Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week we gather on the traditional, ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out Uhail.net for a Zoom link and more information. We're reading today first from Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Just say this. The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them that what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Then... He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second verse is from the second chapter of Philippians, beginning at the fifth verse.
1: thanks be to god thanks be to god but let's pray holy god we give you thanks and praise that uh, how you are never ceases to surprise us we thank you that uh, through your word you are known to us and we pray that uh, you would open us up to hear that surprising word today so that we would know you better and that we might make you better known in this world. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as uh, should be clear by now, it's uh, it's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is the, the kind of pivotal moment in the church calendar, everything turns on this week. And we're bold to say that not just for the Christian calendar, but for all of creation, everything turns on this week. If it's true, it changes everything. The, the, the rhythms we move through from here until next Sunday build this framework for understanding not just how things are, but how they really are. You know, Holy Week is new sight for eyes gone dim. Because Holy Week is where we come face to face with the character of God. When we want to say something about how God is for the world, what God's will and way is for all things, we, the most accurate thing we can do is point to Holy Week. We point to Jesus' movements through this week. This, the church insists, is what God is about, and it makes all the difference. And normally, I would focus almost entirely on this kind of uh, bit of subversive street theater that we just heard about from St. Mark's Gospel, uh, where Jesus is paraded into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I think we should pause for a second to kind of wonder at it. You know, Jesus is reenacting this promise from the prophet Zechariah uh, that when God's true king comes, it won't be all war horses and military might, but humbly and riding on the foal of a donkey— When God's true king arrives, it won't be with the bluster of Rome that we've come to expect, but in a way that undermines all our expectations. And we see this really clearly. Everything in this scene is kind of meant to make a mockery of the way that Rome or any other empire does things. Jesus isn't trumpeted into town like a conquering hero. He's marched into the city among Uh, the songs of ordinary and everyday folks, not with military banners and the clanging of armor, but with branches and cloaks and whatever is at hand. He writhes in from the Mount of Olives, as Aaron showed us, uh, which is also another prophetic allusion, also from Zechariah, that the crowds would almost certainly have picked up on. But also importantly, it's, it's, uh, it's from the opposite direction, from which a a Roman legion would arrive. It's from the east instead of the west, as if to make really clear that this victory march is something altogether different. That the whole thing is this reminder that God's ways and thoughts aren't ours, that the way of God uh, for this world confounds our expectations of power and salvation and victory. And, And I just want to say that I think that the part where he sends his disciples to commandeer a donkey is among the funniest parts of Scripture, actually. Uh, you know, I always like to imagine the disciples' faces when, they, when he tells them to just go ahead and grab someone's donkey, you know, and if they ask you what you're doing, just tell them that the Lord needs it, and everything will be cool. You know, I mean, just imagine this conversation now, you know, like, Sir, why are you taking this car? Well, the Lord needs it. Ah, I understand. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> You know, I've often thought that this, this part of the story is kind of a reminder that Jesus asks us to do weird things. If we're going to get in on this weird kingdom of his, which every generation of saints insists is the hope of the world, then we're going to be asked to do weird things. And, and, and we're going to be asked to do them just because Jesus says so. And of course, the biggest difference between us and those first confused disciples is that we know what's coming. Right? Both the devastation and the glory. We know what this week holds. We, we know that in a few days, Jesus will make crystal clear that he is not the king who conquers with power and fear and violence, but he is the Lord who will strip down and wash even his, uh, his betrayer's feet. We know that the singing and dancing crowds will, will soon uh, be the same ones screaming for his state-sanctioned execution. We, we know uh, that the disciples who so boldly bring this donkey because the Lord says so will soon scatter in fear. We know the static of Holy Saturday when it seems for all the world like the dream of another way is dead. And most importantly, on this side of Easter, we, we know that it's not. And yet we need that reminder, don't we? Right? Part of the brilliance and gift of the Christian calendar is that it, it brings us back here again and again, over and over. We come back to see again that God's ways aren't ours. We're reminded again and again that the, the call of God is not to a slightly improved state of things. It's not to make already pretty nice folks a little nicer. Right? Good Friday is not an affirmation that we were doing pretty well on our own. But it's a call to something altogether new from the moment that Jesus lumbers into Jerusalem on this ridiculous beast of burden we can't help but know that Jesus way is strange in the world and when Jesus calls us he calls us into that strangeness now which is why this year I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and, and consider this strange passage that we heard from Saint Paul's letter to the Philippians and I'd encourage you to have it in front of you if, uh, if it's not familiar Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. See, Paul Paul uses this poem, and and most scholars would agree that it it sounds like a hymn. It sounds like a poem that the the Philippians may already have known. You can kind of imagine them mouthing the words along with whoever's reading it in public. This is a hymn they've sung before, and he uses it, Paul does, to remind them of the strangeness of their call. These words draw them away from anything that distracts from the peculiar way of Jesus in order to see him clearly as he is. It refocuses them on the wild hope of the gospel, and it does the same for us. And I think this passage is is, is Holy Week in poetry. You know, it, it, this handful of lines reminds us of what God is about, and what Jesus has got us into, and what breathtakingly good news it is. You now, first of all, it reminds us of what a strange God it is who's made a claim on our lives. You know, it's a fair bet. Uh, almost a certainty, I would say, that the Philippians were, were well familiar with the stories of, of Greek and Roman gods and, and maybe others who were known on occasion to slip into our world for pleasure and plunder. But, but those gods, uh, for those gods, humanity was largely a means to an end, uh, pawns to be n- manipulated and controlled. Humanity was a slave to those gods. And Paul is bold to say, no, 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 no. No, those gods are no god at all. This is what God is like. In Jesus, we meet the God who doesn't grasp at power, which is surprise enough. But even more staggeringly, this God doesn't disdain humanity. This God is fully prepared to get all mixed up with us, even to become one of us, to, to take on a life like ours. The, the one who made the heavens and the earth with a word, the one who shapes mountains and strews the stars, is pleased to be found in the body of a Jewish rabbi from the sticks. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, Colossians says. It, it, it's pretty mind-bending. You know, that alone that the fullness of God is prepared to dwell in the body of Jesus, it, it, that alone is enough to know that we're not dealing with the gods that we're used to. And, and that's fundamentally important, I think. If we don't kind of start to get this right, we're going to have a hard time with the rest. We could spend a whole lot longer on it than we've got this morning. We could probably stay here till next Sunday if we wanted. Um, but, but let's notice a, a couple of things about what this means. I mean, it means, for one, that ours is the God who will not stay away, who will not stay aloof, who will not keep a safe and heavenly distance, but ours is the God who gets close, even recklessly near, and gives up everything to get to us, come what may. And it means that we're not trying to get away from this world, you know, but that God has gotten into this world with us. Life is not a Herculean struggle to reach divine heights, but the promise that God Cross heaven and earth to be with us. It means that this world and these bodies uh, are, are not uh, offensive to God's work, but that the very stuff that, that gives shape to it. It means that God will not treat us like pawns and slaves, but will defy every expectation in order to serve us, to bless us, to be poured out for us. This is who God is. God is for us. God is for you. Now that said, the first couple of verses of this hymn are a profound reminder that this God is no self-projection. Right? This God is for us, but we clearly don't get to use this God for our purposes. We could not have made this God up. We wouldn't have. There's no evidence to show that we would have chosen this God. But by grace, this is the God we've got. And this, by grace, is the God who's chosen us. It's such good news. you know, Even before Easter, we've got a God who defies our expectations about how things are. In a world that teaches us that might makes right, a world that makes a virtue of our grasping at everything we can and determines our worth by how much we grasp hold of, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> In a world that cheers on our self-protection and self-serving and self-exalting, Jesus shows us what real power and real authority, real possession, real life looks like. God will not deal with us as we are so used to being dealt with. Instead, God will love us extravagantly, lavishly, even when we least deserve it, and right to the end and then through it. Raw power doesn't win. Love wins. And this is how God is. and, And oddly, How God is tells us something about what it means to be most fully human. You know, the Bible begins more or less with this extraordinary claim that humans are made in the image of God. And so if this is how God is, it tells us something about how we're created to be. Now, again, we see humanity, or to be human, rather, is not contrary to God's way. It's to be caught up in God's way. It's to be reminders of God's way in everything we do. I think we should scrub the phrase, I'm only human, uh, from our our speech. We should never say that again. Instead, we should say with one of the church fathers that the, the glory of God is the human fully alive. Or as another one said, he became like us so that we could become like him. Paul prefaces this incredible poem with this incredible charge. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he seems to think that that's possible. Let yourself be caught up in the wonder of God's way for us and for this world. Allow the strange beauty of Jesus to captivate us fully. You know, later in the letter, Paul's going to say this. He says, finally... Beloved, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's pleasing, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, and don't just think about them, but do them. Or, as he says in the letter to the Romans, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can know the will of God, and knowing, do it now to look to jesus especially to follow him through holy week is to be changed to be made more fully human uh here and now not somewhere someday but here and now to be not conformed but transformed i think that's part of the reason that easter is not nearly as commercially successful as christmas you know what 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 we see in jesus changes everything. Easter makes a claim on us. It sets a choice in front of us. It, it reveals the limitations of the way we've been told things are and opens up the possibility of the way that they really are, the way they will be when God gets the world that God wants. And to move through the rhythms of Holy Week is to, to see that God has acted decisively to insist that the will and way of Jesus, this wild, self-giving, world-inverting love, is the way that all things are headed. Now next Sunday we will we will celebrate the seal on the promise that Jesus name really is the name above every name and that the whole creation heaven and earth and under the earth is caught up in the dragnet of his grace and his determination to make all things new. And, and it's, it's it's astonishing. It should never cease to amaze us that we are not just passive observers of this. You know, on this side of Easter we know in a way that we could not have known except for Easter that we're not meant to just be among the curious who will watch him be crucified. Now we're meant to pick up a cross ourselves, just like he said, that in these bodies, in this life, we are sufficient to join him in bearing witness to the way that God loves the world wherever we are. Let the same mind be in us as in him. We get to be in on this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Allow the glory of God to capture your attention. Let the wonder of this God who sets the oppressed free, who gives fresh sight, who binds the broken, who delights in justice, who who gives rest to the weary and hope to the hopeless, who stoops down to the ash heap and raises the dead. Let the wonder of this God consume our imagination and learn what it is to live in glad response to to what God has done. And this is my last point. I think it's important to remember, and Holy Week helps us to see this, that the Christian life really is a response. You know, we're in on it, but the initiative isn't ours. We're not tasked with making the world better for God or getting ourselves sorted out appropriately so that we're good enough for God. Holy Week doesn't invite us to try harder. Instead, we're invited to receive a new possibility. We're simply called to get in on what God is already doing, what God has already done. We're not in the world for God, but we get to be in God, caught up in God's mercy and grace, God's forgiveness and love, God's commitment to making all things new for the sake of the world. Not in the world for God, but in God for the world. And as we move into Holy Week now, I, I want to invite you into the grace of that fact. We are not in the world for God. We are in God for the world. And I want to encourage you to take some time this week, carve out some time this week, just to sit with this Philippian poem. Now don't shortchange yourself by just listening to me talk about it. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you through it. You know, Linger in it. Chew on it. Memorize it. Give yourself some time to marvel at it because this is the God that we've got and it's wildly good news for us and for all things. And so as Paul says in another letter, to God who by the power at work within us, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is able to do abundantly far more in us and through us than we would dare ask or imagine. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church, in our lives, here and now and forever. Amen.